If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. And this morning we return to our series on the Gospel according to Luke. The story of Jesus coming into the world as the Savior of the world. If you were with us or if you've read the Gospel, you will remember that it opens with God breaking His 400 years of silence to his people by sending an angel to appear to an old priest in Israel. Though childless, he is promised that he and his wife will conceive a son whose name will be John and he will be the forerunner for this coming Savior, the Messiah, God's deliverer. He will make the nation ready to receive the one they have long waited for, the one that has been long promised to deliver them from their sins. Then another woman hears from God this is about as opposite as you can get from the old priest. It is a young, unmarried girl, a teenager, betrothed to be married, and yet the angel tells her that before she is married, before the marriage can be consummated, while still a virgin, God will supernaturally cause her to conceive and bear a son whose name will be Jesus, and he will be the Savior for the sins of his people. He will be the long-promised Savior from the very beginning of creation itself through a string of hopes and prophecies across generation and generation up to the present day. In the fullness of time, we see God fulfilling His promises, these young men being born exactly as predicted. And on the edges of Jewish society, there is much rejoicing, not only in the deliverance of these two young living sons, but in the powerful working of God to save His people. These sons, as promised, grow and at the appointed time emerge in society as young men on a mission from God. John is preaching out in the wilderness, commanding all of Israel to repent, to turn from their sins and get ready for God's coming. Jesus, a short while later, emerges as the one who is coming, as God in the flesh come into the world to be the Savior of His people. And He begins His ministry by identifying with sinners, both the waters of John's baptism and through undefiled character despite Satan's temptations. Then Jesus Himself begins to preach. Empowered by God's Spirit for God's mission, He preaches the good news of God's kingdom, revealing His authority through His Word, teaching God's people and His Word of power over demons. Some are astonished and rejoice that God is at work in Jesus' ministry, and others are upset and despise Him because He is not their expectation of a Savior and a Messiah. Still yet others get a first-hand glimpse of His power, a personal touch by Jesus, and God calls them out from the crowds who are listening to follow after Him as His disciples. And then we come to our passage this morning in chapter 5, right in the middle of the chapter. And as Luke continues to write, he gives us two scenes, two stories of Jesus' power revealed, of Him revealing Himself through healing miracles. As we look at these stories, what we see is that they tell us not just about Jesus, but they tell us about ourselves. They tell us about how even today there is a healing that must take place in us if we are to be right with God. Listen to what Luke says as I read. Luke 5, beginning at verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. 
But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed by their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men, were bringing on a, uh, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay, lay him before Jesus. But finding no way in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed of the tiles into the midst of Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sin but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. This is the word of God. May he bless its reading this morning. As we consider these two themes, Luke is adding to our picture of Jesus. He is building up for us an image of him as the Savior of the world. And specifically today, he tells us just what kind of Savior he's going to be. It's not necessarily something that he has not said before, or at least hinted at, or won't tell us again. And yet it is four important themes, four important ideas about who Jesus is that need to be pressed home and understood and believed again and again and again. First, we see that Jesus is the needed Savior. The needed Savior. Our passage opens with Luke telling us that while Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Now, in biblical terminology, leprosy can serve as kind of a catch-all for all kinds of skin diseases, including what is actually the, the condition known as leprosy, or today, Hansen's disease. This is why in the Old Testament law, certain conditions would clear up. They would be examined by the priest. The person would be uh, declared clean and be given the ability to go back into society. You can read about that in Leviticus 13 and 14. But the actual disease of leprosy had no cure. So if this was something that you contracted, there was no cleansing, there was no hope of healing. Today, we actually have effective drug treatments that will work against the the infection, but that's only been in the last 20 or 30 years. In Jesus' day, apart from divine intervention, there was no healing to come. And the disease itself was brutal. Leprosy creates open sores and lesions on the skin, which not only cause great pain, but make the wearing of clothing or bathing on those areas increasingly painful. As the disease progresses, you face the permanent loss of nerve feelings and sensation. This often leads to physical dismemberment of the limbs. That may seem, in one sense, a good thing, in the sense that you no longer feel pain, but you realize that's not a good thing. As much as pain is a result of the fall, it is a good thing for us today. Imagine walking through your house and cracking your toe open in the middle of the night on your way to the bathroom. You get to the bathroom, you feel this intense pain, you see that you've got this open wound, and so you we wash it out, you put some antibiotic ointment on it, you, you tape it up, and you uh, hobble along back to bed, maybe popping an aspirin or ibuprofen. 
You've got leprosy and you do this and you don't feel the pain. You don't realize it's cracked open and bleeding. So you go to the bathroom, you lay back down, you go back to bed. Eventually, this thing gets infected, gangrene forms, and your toe falls off. Not a good thing to have happen. In fact, in modern day leprosy, one of the most difficult things in third world countries was as uh, flesh would begin to become sword and, and open and gaping and oozing, rats would appear and begin to gnaw on the limbs and appendages of people suffering from leprosy and they wouldn't know it as they slept. And so one doctor who worked in a missions context said that one of his post-treatment prescriptions for those suffering leprosy was always to give them a cat to take home with them to eat the rats before it gnawed off their limbs. More than one scholar has called the condition of leprosy a living death. But that's just the physicality of it. What was made worse was the social implications. Even in India today, if you have leprosy, you are considered untouchable and are not even granted the same rights as those under Indian law. In Jesus' day, this man would have been under Old Testament law, which meant living alone outside the camp. Worse, he was considered spiritually unclean. And if anyone came close, he had to announce, unclean, unclean, to warn people of the danger. Not just of perhaps catching the leprosy, but specifically of being tainted by the spiritual ritual uncleanness of that individual. You yourself becoming unclean by coming in contact with them. Now, as you think about this, imagine this is you. Imagine this is your spouse. Imagine this is one of your children. No worshiping at the synagogue, at the temple. No coming to church on Sunday. No walking together with friends. No working a job. No living at home. No simply going to the grocery store. No human contact with anyone unless they themselves had this dreaded disease. It would have been incredibly devastating for this man and for anyone who had this condition of leprosy. And notice Luke's diagnosis of the doctor. Having talked to the eyewitnesses, noting their descriptions of this man, Luke's conclusion is this man was full of leprosy. This wasn't a guy who had a, who had a spot on his arm or maybe a little, little place on his face. Here is a man who is covered from head to toe, who has a condition that has gone on for year after year after year after year. Perhaps he is getting close to the end of his natural life under this disease. He is full of leprosy. Later we read about another man who was ill. In verse 18 we see this man was paralyzed. Here is a man who is not just lame, but completely unable to move himself from one place to another. Here is a man trapped in his own body as it were, thinking and feeling, but incapable of caring for himself. Though not as ostracized as the leper, he is nevertheless cut off from life in the community in other ways. Unless someone picks him up and carries him out, he's stuck in his house all day, hearing life go on outside of his door. Both these men have very different diseases and, and illnesses, and yet they both have a commonality. Both have this in common. They have a desperate need of Jesus. They have a desperate need of Jesus. In fact, this is what Luke wants to, to drive home to us. As he recounts the leper breaking social norms, entering the city, finding Jesus, and begging for help, Think about the extent the other man's friends go to, taking apart a roof to get this man in the presence of Jesus. Why? Because they all understand this. Jesus is their only hope. They have a need, and he is the only Savior that can meet that need. And in this way, the diseases of these people point to a far worse condition that we all suffer from called sin. 
Leprosy is an especially powerful sign of our spiritual disease. In fact, God himself uses leprosy as a metaphor for sin in Isaiah chapter 1. Think about it. Like leprosy, sin is incurable apart from God's working. Like leprosy, sin disfigures not our body, but our hearts and our lives, making us numb to its deadly effects. Like leprosy, sin cuts us off from spiritual relationships we are meant to have with God and his people. Like leprosy, sin leaves us spiritually dead before God. And the result is, just like these men, we stand today in desperate need of a Savior for our condition. And Jesus is the only Savior that can meet that need. He is our needed Savior. Thankfully, as these men found out, He is more than that, though. Jesus is also a compassionate Savior. Jesus is a compassionate Savior. We read, There came a man full of leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Now, we think about the situation that faced this man. These words are nothing short of amazing. Imagine yourself as one of the Jews that are there. They see this man who's really not supposed to be in this close of proximity to people without announcing himself beforehand. He's throwing himself on the ground, begging Jesus for help. What would their reaction to have been? They would have known by his appearance that he was a leper. They would have at the very least, instinctively took a step back or two. Some may have even ran. It may have been like the old the old movies where the woman screams and grabs her kids and runs in the house and closes the, 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 the shades behind her. It would have been an open and obvious reaction. And then Jesus, we are told, stretched out his hand. Again, put yourself in the mindset of the Jew of the first century. It would have been like everything was moving in slow motion. Everything you've been learning as a child, everything that you grew up with, everything you knew from the law is about to come crashing down around you. They didn't have stories of the boogeyman. They had stories of the scary lepers at night. And suddenly there's one in your midst, and here is Jesus, this man that you've come to listen teach, this man that you've seen do good and you think is a prophet from God, and he is about to stretch out his hand and touch this unclean leper it would have been horrifying and mortifying for you and for them eyebrows are raising mouths are gaping open as jesus hand comes closer and closer to this man's shoulder and then suddenly jesus embraces him jesus knows that more than any social taboo that he may be breaking this man needs compassion and he gives it to him You say, how is it compassion to touch him? Think about how long had it been since this man had felt human touch. Think about how long it had been since he had had been able to put his arm around a close friend. Perhaps he had a wife he had to leave behind and children that he could no longer embrace and kiss and hug as he once did. A simple handshake of greeting was no longer an option for this man full of leprosy. The man knows that Jesus had the power to heal. He doesn't doubt that. He just doesn't know if he's willing to heal. And what we see is that Jesus is indeed willing to heal. He is a compassionate Savior. And that should bring all of us hope as we think about the disease of sin and the need that we have, that Jesus is compassionate, that he stands willing to reach out, that he is willing to come in contact with us, that he is willing to heal. But at the same time, we might be tempted to read verse 16 and maybe not really believe that. 
What's going on here? Luke says that after he healed the leper, even more the report around about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him to be healed by their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. You can imagine the disciples looking and saying, but, but Jesus, there's more ministry to be done. Why don't we stay and heal them all? Why are you stopping this work? You're increasing in popularity. Lame people are walking. Blind people are sealing. Uh, deaf people are hearing. People with leprosy are being healed. Why are you stopping this work? Isn't ministry more important than prayer? And Jesus' answer to that is no. No. Remember that as much as Jesus is divine, he's also human, fully human. He's more than a mere man, but he's not less than a man. And like any man, he needs rest. More than that, he needs to experience communion with God. So even in the midst of much ministry, Jesus had a choice. He could keep going, he could keep serving, he could keep healing, and he could burn out. He could get tired and grumpy and prone to sin. Or he could know his limit, he could stop, and he could go spend time with his heavenly father. I fear some of you are here this morning and you're trying to run on your own tank alone. You've not learned the lesson that Jesus learned and you're running yourself into the ground. You, you may even be a Christian and think, I can live this life believing all of the right things, even doing all of the right things like ministry, but never stopping to take use of the spiritual resources that you have to have to actually live the way that God wants you to. Some of you think, I don't have time for that. I, I'm a busy parent, or my, my, my job hours are just too long, or some seemingly reasonable excuse other than that. But the truth is, frankly, no one in this room is that important or that busy. We're just not. And the second reality is this. If we don't stop and take time to take a cue from Jesus' playbook here, then we're not going to be effective at what we do and in how we live for God. We're actually working against the purposes of God if we don't stop and pray, if we don't take time to pull away and spend much-needed help, getting much-needed help from God in communion with Him. It doesn't matter how noble of a task you think you have. You won't do it well, and you won't honor God if you don't cultivate your life with Him, if you don't draw from His spiritual resources by communing with Him. Others of you are here, though, and you're not worried about any of that. Because the person that you don't need to identify with, the person that you don't even have in your mind identifying with is Jesus, but the leper. You realize that you have a much bigger problem and you feel unclean like he was. You feel isolated from God. The truth is, if sin is like leprosy, then the entire earth is a one giant leper colony. And you feel the weight of that more than most people. Some of you have committed sins for which you are deeply ashamed. And you've never come to a place where you really feel like the guilt is gone. That, that God has brought cleansing to your life. And you are here today and you're asking the question that the leper asked. Jesus, I know that you're able, but are you willing? Are you willing to reach out and to touch me and to truly cleanse me of my sin and cleanse me of my guilt and cause me to feel clean once again or perhaps for the first time in your life? And the answer that comes back to this burning question is, yes, Jesus is able and willing to make you clean. I love what Matthew says in chapter 12. 
He's talking about Jesus and he says that he has come in fulfillment of the promise of Isaiah. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Now most of us don't deal with bruised reeds and smoldering wicks on a daily basis, so what is he talking about? Well, perhaps you've, you've been on a hike, you've been by the water, you've seen the, the, the reed, instead of standing stall, tall and straight, that it's been whacked somehow, an animal rubbed up against it, a kid's thrown a rock and it's bruised and now it's sagging over. Well, it's very tempting just to grab the end and just yank it off and be done with it and toss it out in the water. But Jesus doesn't do that though. uh, people are like the bruised reed. They've they've been tainted by sin. They are spiritually weak, and yet they are struggling. They are are trying. They want to be right with God. And Jesus doesn't say, I'll be done with you, and yank you off and cast you off into hell. No, he comes along and he binds up the bruised reed so that it can be strengthened and can once again stand tall. We have this candle, this, this burning wick, this imagery of a flame that's died down so that all you see is the faintest hint of an orange glow and a whiff of smoke coming. What are we tempted to do? And be done with it. But Jesus doesn't do that. He, he, he comes along to the spiritually weak, weak, weak person and he gets close and he takes his breath and he goes, He begins to see that slight glow inflame even more and grow and intensify. And he, he, he works with this until it is a burning candle once more. Matthew is saying this is the kind of tenderness and compassion and mercy that Jesus has towards people, towards sinners struggling before God. If they are willing to come before Jesus and trust in him, like this leper to cast their life before him, then he's not going to stomp them in the ground. He's not going to kick dirt in their face. He's not going to say, get away from me, unclean sinner. No, he's going to welcome them in. He's going to show them compassion. He's going to say, yes, I am willing. I am willing to make you clean. And I am willing to be patient with you as you struggle. I am willing to give you grace and grace and grace and grace until you are encouraged and burning brightly for God. Christianity may confront us with our sin. It may cause us to feel real and deep guilt because of the ugliness of who we are and what we have done. But Jesus also stands at the center of Christianity. He is compassionate towards sinners. And he stands with open arms, ready to forgive and to cleanse. Thus, Christianity might begin with guilt, but true Christianity always ends with joy. With joy in our cleansing in Christ. Jesus is the needed Savior. He is a compassionate Savior towards sinners. But more than that, he is a healing Savior. Jesus is a healing Savior. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, make, if you, will you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus touches the leper, but Jesus doesn't become unclean. That's what we would expect to happen. That's what the Jews standing there would have expected, that Jesus is now going to be unclean, ritually, ceremony, spiritually unclean. Instead, Jesus' cleanliness comes to the leper, and he is healed. He is free from this disease. And I love what comes next. Jesus charged him to tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest, and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. Some of you are thinking, why do you love that? That's like... 
That's like some weird little historical thing. Why is it so important? It's not just a weird historical thing. It is essentially important. And Luke is telling us this, not just because Jesus did it, but because it's telling us more about Jesus and his authority and his power to heal. Why does he tell them that? First of all, the law required it. Go back and look at Leviticus 14. If someone had a skin disease and they thought they were healed, before they were welcomed back into the community, they had to go to the priest. And and the the, the, the priest would look at them. They would open the shirt and say, look, I used to have this nasty red spot that you can remember. I was here a couple weeks ago, and now it's gone. And he would look at it. If it was gone, then he would say, praise be to God, offer the sacrifice, ritually wash. Uh, if it's been that long, you shave your, your head, your beard, and your everything back, and uh, you're welcome back into the community of faith. But here's the thing. The priest could only declare that you had been cleansed. The priest could only declare that you were no longer diseased. The priest could never make you clean. The priest could never cleanse you. And Jesus says, no problem, I can cleanse you. I am the true, the perfect high priest. And what every other priest before me could not do, now I can do. And so he sends this man back into the priesthood. He sends this man back into the company of the religious leaders of Israel to say, God has shown up. God is at work. What you could never do, what you thought would never happen, a leper, clean, I have done. And I want you to be able to see it. That's what Jesus is communicating here in these verses. The healing that Jesus gives, though, is about more than just the physical diseases and mending of bodies. And the second healing makes this clear. You have this crowd packed into a house where Jesus is teaching, and these men are bringing their sick friend to see him. So they go up to the roof because it's too crowded again, and they begin to dig through the clay and the reeds of the roof, and they lower this mound down. Now, I don't care what culture you're from. I don't care where you were raised. There's basically only two responses to this likely if you're reading this text, but especially if you're sitting there for it. One is to completely lose it because this guy just tore a a hole in the roof. And all you're thinking about is, how am I going to fix that? How much is it going to cost? Are they going to be responsible for that? And the second response is to either get a Cheshire Cat grin just beaming across your face or even to laugh out loud at the audacity of this. And frankly, I think Jesus is in the second group. Why? Because he says what they did came from their faith. They knew if we just get this guy to Jesus, he'll be okay. And so you can just imagine, you know, that they're, they're kind of working and all of a sudden, clunk. You know, sometimes we get this, we get this image, we get this image because of things we've heard that they're up there with like shovels digging through all this sod and peat. It wouldn't have taken that long. Uh, it, it was it was much quicker. All of a sudden, boom, there's a hole. And everybody looks up, and suddenly this guy drops down. And, and I can just imagine this grin comes on Jesus' face because he knows exactly what they're doing. He knows why they're there. He knows what their intentions are. And he knows what's in their hearts. And Luke tells us the power of the Lord was with him to heal, verse 17. But I think Luke means more than we might initially think. This sick man is laid out before Jesus, and Jesus does something we might not Expect. He tells this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven you. This is the true healing that Jesus gives. This is the healing that all other healings point to. The forgiveness of the problem, the disease, the cancer of sin in our souls. This is what Jesus heals. This is what Jesus cleanses. 
but that doesn't go down with everyone. Here we enter the Pharisees for the first time in Luke's gospel. They will show up a lot in the coming chapters, so we're not going to say everything that could be said about these guys by way of introduction, but what I do want to do is perhaps correct some bad press that they get. Not so much bad press, but maybe an overly simplistic view of these guys. They are often the antagonists in the story. They are opposed to Jesus. And therefore, in our minds, they become a sort of black-hatted, mustache-twirling Hollywood villain. Very uh, one-dimensional, simple enemies of Jesus and therefore guys that we don't like. But the reality is, the Pharisees are much more of a tragic figure than that. They're tragic because the Pharisees were the back-to-the-Bible people of the day. They loved God's word. And the one thing they wanted more than anything else in their life, in the life of Israel, in the world, for God's word to be honored, for his law to be kept. The problem was that that good desire became twisted as their pursuit of law keeping became, in their mind, a means of justifying themselves before God. They believed in God's grace. They, they knew full well that they were the recipients of God's grace. But they added to it their own works for salvation. And that was their downfall. Why are they even here? Well, I think it goes back to the previous story. I think when Jesus sent the man back to the temple, I think it created interest. I think it created questions. I think they're here to check things out. They would have been eager to see if Jesus was truly a prophet from God. If he was, they would have loved him. They would have embraced him. They would have endorsed him. They wanted to see this, this man who had a power to heal. But Jesus' word of forgiveness was just too much for them. Luke says the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who indeed? That's the, that's the, the ironic question they're asking that they know the answer to, but they can't bring themselves to see the truth of it. God alone is who can forgive sins, and that's what Jesus is claiming. He is God alone, God in the flesh. They're asking the right questions, but they're drawing the wrong conclusions. And the story only gets better. Jesus knows the questions that are in the the minds of these men and he responds by asking them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you or to say, rise and walk? Which is easier? Well, for us, it's neither, right? I mean, it's about kind of like asking the average uh, fifth grader, which is easier for you, teaching quantum physics or doing brain surgery? The answer is neither. It's a five-year-old. They can't do those things. And when I think about this, I can say neither. I can't forgive sins like God. I can't heal a lame man so he walks again. But think about it another way. What is easier to say and to prove is true? Or what is easier to say and harder to disprove? I can walk up to lots of people and say, your sins are forgiven. That doesn't mean they're forgiven, right? I can't prove they're forgiven, but neither can you disprove they're forgiven. Right? There's nothing to see. But if I say to you, get up and walk, well, it's going to become very apparent very quickly whether or not I have the authority and the ability to do that. That's what Jesus is saying here. What's easier to say? Get up and walk, be healed, or your sins are forgiven. And notice what he says. He says, you want to know that I am able to forgive people's sins? Watch this. Get up and walk. Take your mat and go home. And he does it. 
Immediately, verse 25, he rose up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. Here is a man who came to Jesus weak and wounded, sick and sore, and he found Jesus ready to save, full of pity, love, and power. No priest, no matter how full of compassion and desire, could forgive sins. He could only mediate God's provision through the sacrifices. But Jesus is not like any other priest. He is the perfect Savior, God in the flesh, who has the authority to forgive sins. He is the perfect Savior who has compassion on sinners, willing to save. He is the perfect Savior, the one who fully meets our deepest spiritual needs. And therefore, Jesus becomes our Savior when we trust Him. This is the last thing that we see. Jesus is a trusted Savior. Jesus is a trusted Savior. All throughout this passage, we see evidences regarding faith. Faith about who Jesus is and the Savior that people need. First, we see the leper who comes with humble trust. Humble trust. Notice again, he comes falling on his face, begging him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. This guy doesn't presume that Jesus will heal him. He doesn't come expecting God is automatically going to provide healing. But he knows two things. First, Jesus is Lord and he is not. That's why he bows down before him in a position of humble reverence. And secondly, he knows that Jesus is able to heal. He doesn't know if he's willing, but he knows that he's able. He knows that if he is willing, it will happen. Full stop. He trusts in Jesus. It's an amazing display of trust because, frankly, that kind of faith is rarely seen today among God's people. We often make excuses that will let God off the hook because we don't expect him to answer our prayers. And then eventually we come to not pray. The paralytic also trusts in Jesus. You say, how do you know? Well, I'm pretty sure that his friends didn't just create this cockamamie idea and say, come on, uh, we're going to go take you to see Jesus. And he's, and he's you know, laying there saying, no, I don't want to go to Jesus. I don't want to go to Jesus. And they say, come on, get in here. You're going to go see Jesus. No, I don't think so. I, I think, I think the, 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 what these friends did came, it was born out of the faith of the paralytic himself. They knew he needed healing. And he said, I know that Jesus can heal. And then there's the faith of these guys themselves. Notice Jesus says, or rather Luke says, that Jesus saw their faith as the man is being laid down. I think it's the whole group. It's not just the sick man. It's the men as well. What, what kind of faith do they have? They have a faith that's marked by confident trust. Confident trust. Think about these guys who bring the paralytic friend to Jesus. They carry him for who knows how, how far. I mean, maybe it was down the street. Could have been across town. We don't know. The place is filled up. Now, what would you do? Probably two things. You'd have either turned around and went home and said, we'll try again another day. Or at the very least, you would have waited until he came out. I mean, he's not going to live in there forever. You may have to put the guy down in some shade, go buy some food, come back. It may be a while, a couple hours. But most people would just wait, right? I want to wait it out. He'll come out eventually and then we'll say, Jesus, this guy needs to be healed. That's not what these guys do though, is it? That's not what they do. No, they love their friend. They want him to be healed and they are confident that Jesus can do it. They just got to get him in front of him. So what do they do? They climb the roof. They vandalize the roof. They break up the meeting inside, yell out the ancient Aramaic equivalent of heads up and this guy comes floating down in their midst. Why? Because they know Jesus has the power to heal. They are confident in it and they believe in him. They know if he just gets to Jesus, Jesus can make it better. Jesus can take care of our friend's problems. 
And I love the simplicity of one pastor's question to Christians in light of this passage. What are you willing to do to bring people to Jesus? That's an application question, isn't it? What are you willing to do to bring your friend to Jesus? What are you willing to do? Have you actually invited them? Have you said, hey, why don't you come to church sometime? You may say, yes, but they've turned me down. Or they didn't show up that day. Or they made some excuse. Well, they're lost people. They're non-Christians. Of course they're going to make an excuse. Because the closer it comes to the day, to the event, to the church time, that their own guilty conscience and Satan is going to be working on them and they're going to find any excuse not to go to church. Because it's not what they want. They're lost. So what should you do? Well, you should be really godly and skip Sunday school sometime. Or at the very least, leave early. Say, I'll go pick you up. I'll have a donut or a muffin or a bagel in the car. I'll have some coffee or a Coke, whatever you want. And I want to bring you to church. And then afterwards, I'll take you out for lunch. And look, here, I even bought you a Bible. I've had your name stamped in it. Why don't we get together and read sometime? You know, you know why we don't do that? Two reasons. Either, number one, we're not really confident Jesus can save. Or number two, we're too preoccupied with our own agenda for life instead of God's agenda for life. You know, the, the really sad thing is that as much as we don't like the Pharisees, not all the time, but sometimes they look a lot like American Christians. And at least as far as I know, in all four Gospels, I never read once about the Pharisees bringing a lame, a sick, a diseased man to Jesus for healing. They're always there. They're always watching. They always see God at work through Jesus. They see people that have never walked their entire life get up and walk away in joy, glorifying God. But they are never the ones carrying the mat. They are never the ones giving off their busy schedules. They're never the ones giving over time and money and resources and saying, we love our friends. Let's bring them to Jesus that they might be healed. They see the needs all around them. They see the people begging, the people that can't take care of themselves, the people in desperate need of healing. They see that Jesus can heal, but they never work hard at bringing someone to Jesus. Why? Because they're missing trust. They have a missing trust. Of all the people that should have been excited about Jesus coming, it should have been these guys. They knew the Bible. They had the verses memorized. Think about what Jesus says to them. He's making it easy on them. That you may know who, not I, not the Messiah, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, for us, that may seem obscure, but to guys who know and love the Old Testament, that would have been like bells ringing. Son of Man, Son of Man, that's Daniel 7. Daniel 7, we have this vision of the prophet who sees the throne of Almighty God, the ancients of days, and one has the audacity to approach the throne. This one who looks like a son of man. Uh, More than that, he's worthy to receive authority and kingdom and dominion and power from God, and he has given a kingdom that will never end. Jesus, is is that who you're saying you are? That you are the son of man? That you have come with the authority of God to heal and to forgive and to establish a kingdom? They should like the crowds have been seized with amazement. They should have fallen down at his feet and worshipped him and welcomed their king. But they didn't do that. They didn't have faith in Jesus. They didn't trust him to be their savior. They only trusted in themselves. So the question is, what about us this morning? What kind of faith do we have? Is it a faith in Jesus marked by humble trust, confident trust, 
or like the Pharisees, are we marked by a missing trust? Are we trying to cleanse ourselves? Are we trying to bring healing for the disease of sin which God alone can heal? Jesus said to the man in our passage, your sins are forgiven. No one else in history has said that. No one. Buddha never said it. Krishna never said it. L. Ron Hubbard never said it. Joseph Smith never said it. Muhammad never said it. They never say your sins are forgiven. They always say here's a way for you to live. Here's something for you to do that is marked by rituals and good works which pay back God for your sin and your failings or allow you to earn your way back into his good grace or reincarnate into something better and, and relieve your karmic debt, become one with the universe. It's always something you do, but Jesus simply looks and says, forgiven, it's done, I forgive you. Not because of what you have done, not because of what you will do for me, but because of what I've already done for you. He says, I died on a cross bearing the wrath that you deserve for your sin. I took the judgment that you deserve and I lived a perfect life that, might, that it might be considered your own. And now I live again with the full authority of that son of man whose kingdom never ends. And with me, forgiveness will always be granted to those who come humbly, confidently before me, trusting me to be their savior. So just as we sung this morning, I say to you now, come you sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. For Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Come ye weary and heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry, if you wait till you're better, then you will never come at all. Will you arise and go to Jesus? Like the leper stained by an indelible disease, he will embrace you in his arms and cleanse you from all your sins. Father, we are thankful that you have given us that kind of a Savior. We are thankful, Lord, that you have not left us with a path of good works and noble effort by which we drag ourselves up from the muck and mire of life and come to stand before you. No, God, we are thankful that instead you came. You came to us, that you lived and dwelt in the muck and mire of this life. You took it on around you and became flesh and died for sinners like us. God, we are thankful that the Savior that you sent in Jesus it's not about what we do. It's about what he has done for us. He is the perfect savior for our deepest spiritual need. He is a savior who's not only compassionate and willing to heal and forgive, but he is a God who is able to forgive. He is a savior to be trusted. Father, this morning it's our prayer that we would trust in that savior. For those that have trusted long ago, that we would continue to trust. And like these men in this story, who are willing to do just about anything to get their friend to Jesus, that we would do the same. Because we are confident in his power to cleanse and to heal and to forgive. That we ourselves delight in the cleansing and the healing, the forgiving that we have experienced. Father, for those that have never trusted, I pray, Lord, that you would open their mind and their heart. You would help them to see the truth of who Jesus is in this passage. And that you would grant them faith and repentance that they might experience healing cleansing and forgiving. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.